So welcome back, everybody, to episode 14 of the Computomics podcast. I'm very excited today to talk to Emeritus Professor of Plant Breeding at the University of Hohenheim to take our discussion a little bit more into the future of plant science and plant breeding and how the efficiency improvements in the field can really take our food systems and our way of thinking about agriculture into a new direction. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today, so I hope you enjoy the episode. So Albrecht, welcome to the episode. I'm very happy to have you here and uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks also from my side. It's a pleasure to participate in this podcast. Yeah, so um, I'm really excited to have somebody talking back about plant sciences. We've sort of taken a loop around during our latest episodes. We've talked about metagenomics and we've had a chance to talk about some broader topics. And it's really nice to come back to the core of what we do at Computomics, which is really... um, plant performance and phenotype predictions. And I think the, the concept of sort of taking a walk around things also is reflected in the way that you came to plant science. If I understood correctly, you started um, in statistics and then looped back around to agriculture. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how your career came to be. Yeah, well, I grew up on a family farm of small size, typical for Southwest Germany. And I was the first to attend high school in my family. In Germany, it's the gymnasium. And also I was very good in mathematics in school. I didn't dare to study mathematics. So from my background, uh, I started in agricultural biology. And uh, that uh, this study uh, had been introduced newly the year before I started. Interesting. And where was this? This was agricultural biology at the University of Hohenheim, actually. Yeah. And during my undergraduate studies, it turned out that I really enjoyed mathematics a lot. I also realized, particularly in many lectures, for example, in biochemistry or population genetics, that a good command of mathematics would be extremely helpful especially if I wanted to pursue a career in science. Yeah, during my studies in mathematics, I still kept contacts with my professors in population genetics. And actually, I wrote my master's thesis applying probability theory to a problem in plant breeding. In other words, I had always in mind to employ my mathematical skills Mm -hmm. to problems in biology and especially in plant breeding. I see. I see your detour was always with the intention of coming back. I guess it wasn't a detour. It was a, um, a strengthening of a tool that you wanted to use when you came back to the agricultural sciences. Exactly. That was my intention. Uh, I was never interested really in pure mathematics because I I felt, you know, using mathematical skills for the numerous problems in biology, that's something which is of interest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess the same way that we feel like using big data and computational power for plant sciences is also, it's not, I mean, it is about, um, of course, machine learning and computers and 
and things like this, but it's more so about the end goal, right? And the end goal is is improving our agricultural system. So seems like we had the same idea. <laughs> okay, great. So maybe you can tell us a little bit. Um, so currently or always you've worked on maize. Has that been something that you always started working on maize or is that something that's been um, sort of your passion in the different part of your career? Yeah, actually my first contacts with maize were on our family farm where maize was a rather new crop. It was really? introduced in Germany in the 1960s. Really? You know, I didn't because know that. Before there were, I mean, it, uh, during the first 15 years of my life, I think I've never seen maize. Ah. So, and then that, uh, that continued when I um, worked uh, at the university. Then my major professor, Professor Schnell, he had introduced hybrid breeding in maize in Germany. So the first hybrid that was released was released by my major advisor in Germany. Wow, that's very exciting. And uh, a major impetus for my interest in maize came with a uh, stay in the United States in the middle of the Corn Belt, of the US Corn Belt. Mm -hmm. I had the, the privilege to receive a scholarship and I could spend almost two years uh, in the Mecca of maize breeding, I would say, at Iowa State University in wow. Ames. Now, uh, this was, I think, the really which gave me the final decision to do my further research in maize. But there are many other reasons which I can explain, of course, to you. What makes maize, I think, very fascinating um for a scientist and particularly also for a plant breeder yeah that would be i would love to hear about that tell me tell us our audience and me specifically something that's fascinating about maize to you or what keeps your you know what keeps your interest why you wake up every morning and say you know back back at it today <laughs> the first reason i think for me is or why i worked with maize during my whole career as a scientist is maize is one of the most important model plants in genetics and plant breeding. Maize served as a model plant, for example, in cytogenetics, because the chromosomes are large enough so that they can be observed under a normal uh, light mic microscope. And one of the most uh, significant discoveries of modern genetics namely the discovery of jumping genes, which are also known as transposons, were made in maize by Barbara McClintock, who earned a Nobel Prize for her discovery. Wow, that's so great. That touches on so many things that I've, you know, I've worked on. I, of course, started inside of genetics, so I have a very close passion um, for it. I didn't know that. I actually, I guess, never imagined what a corn... Um, corn genome looked like that would be uh, interesting to see and then I always thought about transposons in terms of my Drosophila studies and then you know here you are talking about it in corn so that's that's interesting keep going what else yeah and then maize wars after rice also one of the first important crop species where the whole genome sequence became available that happened in 2009 
Another uh, reason I, for me was maize is really a model plant for plant breeding. And the reason for this is hybrid breeding was invented with maize about a hundred years ago mm -hmm. and still serves as model crop for this breeding scheme, which is the only breeding scheme that does not occur in nature, but was so to speak invented by man. Interesting. And of no. course, it's being or it's attempted to be transferred to many other crops, right? So the success of it in corn, I guess, in yeah. maize. Now, one of the big advantages of maize, and this is, I think, also the reason why hybrid breeding was invented with maize, is that the two sexes occur on the same plant, mm -hmm. but they are spatially separated. You have the tassel uh, on the top of the plant providing the pollen, and you have the silks with the egg cells in the middle of the plant where later the ear develops. Mm -hmm. And this makes it very easy to perform self-pollination and cross-pollination in a very easy and very effective way. Uh, another, another reason why working with maize is rather easy is a high multiplication coefficient. On an ear of maize you have about 200 to 300 seeds. In most other crops, you have maybe 20, 30 seeds. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine if you want to evaluate later on genotypes, this is very important that you have enough seeds. That means you can replicate trials. And each of the seeds is identical on each year of corn? That depends on the, on, on the genetic material. In inbred lines, the seeds are all genetically identical also in a single cross hybrid. That's due to Mendel's first law, the uniformity law says mm -hmm. if you cross two homozygous input lines, what you obtain, the F1 cross, is genetically uniform. Mm -hmm. But if you would work now with a uh, ear of corn that uh, originates from a plant, from a land race, mm -hmm. and land races were planted before hybrids uh, came up, uh, then uh, the, uh, the seeds would be, in our terminology, just half sips. They would have a, a, the same mother, namely the plant where the ear was grown. Mm -hmm. But this plant would be pollinated by the pollen cloud. And the pollen cloud is um, composed of the pollen from many, many different plants. Oh. Yeah, because maize is a cross-pollinated species. Uh, the plants release the pollen to the air and the wind, so to speak, mixes the pollen. And for that reason, in nature, pollination is cross-pollinated. And for that reason, you get a mixture, so to speak, of different pollen. Of course, yeah. It makes sense. It kind of makes me sad that we're that we're missing all of that, missing all that diversity, and you know, kind of a little bit nostalgic for some reason. As I yeah. as, as I imagine the pollen flying through open fields, you know, I don't know. There's a nostalgia that that's no longer the way yeah. that we grow plants. But but there is another point to this now. 
uh, we and that's another reason for me to work with maize, uh, namely the tremendous genetic diversity that we have available in maize. Mm-hmm. Just what you're mentioning, yeah. Uh, maize breeding is concentrating on two uh, races of maize, and altogether we have around 250. Races in maize. Mm-hmm. So we use only about 1% of the total genetic variation that is available in maize. Amazing. And that's, in other words, we have still a tremendous reservoir available that we can use for breeding. And is that where you imagine the field moving? Or what is, where do you imagine to be the future then? Yeah, that's, I'd say, that's one topic of research currently namely to try to exploit the genetic variation in land races. Mm-hmm. Land races were the populations of maize that have been cultivated before hybrids were introduced. And for example, in Europe, we had about, we, or we have currently in the seed banks, about 4,500 uh, land races stored. Wow. If you go to the US, you have around 30,000 land races stored in the seed banks. And where, I'm just curious, who is responsible? Where are the seed banks in Europe and the U.S., do you know? In Europe, there are in different countries in the U.S. The biggest seed bank is in Fort Collins. Hmm. And another one, a very big one as well, is uh, in Mexico City, or, which is maintained by the... Uh, CJR Institute CIMIT, which okay. stands for Cent- Center for the Improvement of Maize and Wheat. Mm-hmm. And they store about, again, 30,000 uh, land races. Okay. Sorry, I took you off topic. Continue. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's, of course, very important also for breeding that you have enough genetic variation available. Now, uh, a third reason for me to work with maize was that uh, hybrid uh, seed can be marketed by companies and it's sold every year in new, which is, for example, not the case in Germany with line varieties. Mm-hmm. With hybrids, farmers buy the seeds every year in new. Right. And that gives, of course, the companies the opportunity to earn money. And for that reason, they invest also in research a lot. Uh, another, another point is why companies are very much interested in uh, modern research is that in hybrid breeding, you see the varieties only at the very end. So you need a lot of theoretical tools to optimize the breeding scheme. Mm-hmm. And that was, of course, for me as a mathematician, also very attractive. To apply those probability apply statistics these, and yeah, yes. of course, of course, of course. Yeah. Is that why you're so interested sort of or feel so engaged or optimistic about, um, you know, sort of our op- approach to predictions because you understand the mathematics behind it or you're m- deeper into the mathematics of it and that sort of gives you a richer understanding of, of yeah. how everything comes together? Yeah, that's, I think, exactly one of the topics I'm very much interested in. And of course, I'm interested about the tools 
that uh, computomics can offer mm-hmm. to improve mm-hmm. our abilities. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can explain you where uh, these tools come in. Oh, that would be fantastic. I would love that. Uh, and maybe I give you a very short excursion of maze breeding, maze yes. or hybrid breeding has two essential components, very simple ones. The first step is you have to develop pure inbred lines. And that was traditionally done by recurrent selfing. That means you self the plants or the plant <coughs> genotype for six generations until you get completely homozygous plants. With each step of selfing, you reduce the number of heterozygous loci by about 50%. So after five or six generations, you have a pure breeding lines, homozygous lines. Now, this was a traditional method. And since about 20 years, we have a new method available, which is called the double tablet technology. Okay. Where you produce the input lines in one step. This method is very efficient. And for that reason, the number of lines the companies develop now per breeding cycle has increased dramatically. Mm-hmm. When they produced, for example, uh, a thousand lines in the past, maybe 15 years ago, nowadays they produce 10,000 uh, new genotypes every breeding cycle, every year anew. Now, again, this is one, the one component. The second component in hybrid breeding is you have to find hybrid combinations. Right. So imagine and maize breeders work with normally with two populations, which we call them gene pools, with two gene pools in Europe. This would be Flint and Dent in the United States. You have two different Dent pools. So imagine you have now in each uh, pool a thousand new lines available every generation, every year. From these 1,000 lines in pool A and pool B, it is possible to produce, in principle, it's possible possible to produce a million new hybrids every year. Mm-hmm. Seems easy to, to grow a million new hybrids, no? This, this is impossible to produce and it's possible to test these. Mm-hmm. But we have the a task to identify the most promising hybrids amongst these million of hybrids that we can possibly produce. The first uh, point is if it would be possible to make predictions based on the properties of the inbred lines, on the hybrids we obtain from them, that would be very efficient. For example, in our case that we, or in the, the, the example that we just discussed, we would have to investigate 2,000 input lines. And from this information, we could predict the 1 million of possible hybrids. Right. Simulate, so you can imagine say. that is, in principle, a very effective method. It's effective if you're able to make any conclusions from it, right? It's, it's not effective in and of itself. If you can make any uh, conclusions. Now, one problem in hybrid breeding is that the properties of the, of the parents is not a good predictor of the performance of the hybrids. You may have two inbred lines that have a high yield. This 
does not necessarily imply that the hybrid is very good. And that's in fact the opposite, right? So the the surprise of crossing two, let's say, completely average looking lines to produce something fantastic is the sort of, I guess, the high that you get, right? So yes. that's the payout. Yeah. And and what we are now doing with new technologies, with, with genomic tools, we uh, genotype these parent lines with usually with SNP markers covering the entire genome. We have meanwhile arrays available that have 600,000 SNPs mm -hmm. at reasonable costs. So we analyze or we genotype all 2,000 input lines in our example, and we would uh, produce uh, a certain number of hybrids that we would use as a training set. For example, we would produce, uh, let's say, a thousand of uh, hybrids out of the one million possible hybrids. Right, right. And then we would use, for example, methods of machine learning to associate the information from our hybrids that we have tested with the genomic information on our parent lines. Mm -hmm. And gain, and we obtain a model, a model equation, for example. We, what we are doing is we assign, or we try to estimate the effects of each, each SNP separately, mm -hmm. and get a prediction equation. And in other words, we sum up the effects over the SNPs. If we would have six hundred thousand SNPs, we would try to estimate the effect of each SNP and sum up over the 600,000 SNPs. Mm -hmm. In other words, that's a purely additive model. Now, if you look at nature, nature does not work necessarily in an additive manner. That's true. We know that we have networks. Genes work not individually, but they work in networks. And this is an aspect that has not been considered properly in our current models, where I expect that machine learning, for example, can really add new information, new information that gives us a higher power, better prediction accuracy when we do prediction. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that's very important if we, we, we phenotype, so to speak, only a small portion of the hybrids that are possible, namely only one uh, Per mill. Mm -hmm. if, if we would have a million uh, possible hybrids, we phenotype only a thousand, then we phenotype only one per mill. Mm -hmm. So we would be interested to make predictions about the remaining ones, namely 999 per mill. And that would be a very efficient system. And there comes in, for example, the tools that Computomics develops. Right. We get excited about it, you know, and I think sometimes other people get excited about it too. Maybe they um, they get concerned because they don't have that sort of 
concrete understanding within themselves of how it's really possible, right? So we may say uh, we may say all these things, but to somebody who's never done these sort of predictions themselves, it's hard to really conceptualize that the valid- validity of it or the potential in it. So how would you explain this to somebody who is maybe hesitant and says, well, you know, we've tried, um, you know, we've tried associating Uh, genomes to phenotypes and it hasn't worked out for example we found a gene and then we put it in the field and then it all sort of went sideways and we just don't believe that this is possible do you feel like you you meet a lot of people like that or yeah the question i often obtain is about you know in particularly in europe is of course genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. Now, I should emphasize what I was talking about. These are complex traits. Of course. In other words, traits were thousands of genetic loci are contributing. And for that reason, it's also more a statistical approach. Mm -hmm. If you work just with a single gene, you can follow its effect relatively easily. Yeah, but uh, I'm coming more from the quantitative side, from quantitative genetics. And for that reason, so to speak, I'm interested in the sum of the uh, effects of all these 1,000 genes or more that influence characters like yield. Sure. I'm asked about genetic engineering. The other topic prediction is not very... Uh, not yet discussed in public. Maybe it will be discussed when uh, personalized medicine, when when uh, tools for personalized medicine are developed. Because essentially, the same principles lie behind personalized medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, what I should mention is the prediction equations that we use in plant breeding and the the ideas have not been developed in plant breeding unfortunately or regrettably i have to admit (laughs) they were developed by animal breeders Mm -hmm. but since genetics works essentially the same you can apply the same principles to breeding of animals breeding of plants even microbes and you can use it for predicting complex traits also in humans Mm In humans, it's a little bit more complicated because you have confounding effects, environment, etc. In plant breeding, we are in the lucky situation that we can perform designed experiments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I guess it's it's amazing how the same storylines get carried through, you know, from us to to then livestock, to then crops. And, you know, like we are sort of all tied together in a very beautiful, uh, connected way way right if we if we choose to think about it different ratios but sort of the same storyline so yeah that's wonderful well thank you so much i really appreciate your time thank you for giving us a great primer on maize genetics and um, on ways that we can integrate our technology into this Um, and i really look forward to speaking again Thank you everyone for listening to this episode on maize breeding with Professor Melkinger. 
I hope you enjoyed the primer on breathing and his discussion on how machine learning can improve our accuracy when predicting phenotypes. I know it was a little bit longer episode than usual, but I think it was deeply informative and I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a rating or review and get in touch with us, info at computomics.com, and we'll see you next time.